Good morning. Aren't you glad we do have the freedom to worship God in a country like this today? So, and my prayer is that we would not take that for granted because one day it could be taken away from us. So let's thank God for what he's given us and for the freedom that we have. But as Bill said, let's remember that our ultimate freedom is not in our country, but it's in our God. It's in Jesus Christ. I do, before we get into the message, I do want to uh, say thank you for praying for us and our high school students as we were away at uh, Fuge in Philadelphia. We had a great week of ministry, a great week of worship, a great week of, of teaching. And uh, our students did great. And again, they got high praise and high compliments from the Fuge staff. It always does my heart well when they come and say, we loved your group this week. And uh, they, they said they were one of the best groups they've had this summer. So, so as a church, you can be proud of the students that we have. And I want to thank the parents for raising these kids in such a way that when they take them off, they not only represent Red House and Christ well, but they represent their families well. And that was the case for our middle school students and high school students. And I'm proud of all of them and how hard uh, they worked this summer in spreading the gospel in Louisville and then in Philadelphia. I must say, we did have some great cheesesteak and water ice. So um, if you want to know where to go for cheesesteak and water ice, uh, I can give you the phone number and you can call and figure out how to get there because I have no clue. So it's not Pat's or Gino's in Philadelphia. That's where tourists go. It's called Ishka Bibbles. So if you're in Philadelphia, you need to go to Ishka Bibbles for, uh, for cheesesteak. And there's this little hole in the wall somewhere in downtown Philadelphia, inner city Philadelphia. They have no sign. They just have a little shelf that comes out of the window, and that's where you get your water ice. Don't know what goes on behind there, but that's okay. The water ice was phenomenal. So uh, you don't go to Rita's. You go to that little place, little hole in the wall. So, but we had a great week, and thank you for your prayers and for your support. And uh, next Sunday night, as Linda mentioned, uh, the high school and middle school students will be sharing about their experiences uh, this past summer and what God did in their lives while they were on a mission trip. So at this time, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Habakkuk. Over these next five weeks, we're going to be taking a journey through the book of Habakkuk. Uh, and I am so thankful, as I said, for our nation. I'm so thankful for the freedom we have. And my prayer is that God would bless America. However, we have to realize that we are a nation in turmoil. We are a nation defined by strife, defined by conflict. We are a nation that is more divided than united. And part of the problem is there are many professing Christians whose lives and values are no different from the world. And this is the problem that Habakkuk was facing in his book in regards to the nation of Judah. And the answer to our nation's problems, the answer to our personal problems, it is not the government. Our only answer is Jesus Christ. Our hope is not the government. Our hope is Jesus Christ. And the only way our nation is going to experience healing and unity and forgiveness is by God intervening on behalf of his people who are committed to him and humble themselves before him. 2 Chronicles 7, 14, God says, If my people who are called by, name, by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. God says he would heal our land. That's a promise, but he said there's a condition. 
You have to humble yourself before me. You have to turn from your wicked ways. And you have to seek my face. And unfortunately in our nation, that is not happening even among Christians. And at the end of our service today, during our time of commitment, I'm going to invite those who want to come to come to this altar and pray for our nation. Because one of the main things we can do to help our nation, to heal our nation, is to pray. That God would change the hearts of people, that God would change our hearts. Because if we want God to change our nation, it starts with God changing our hearts. So I'm starting a new series today called From Turmoil to Triumph, based on the book of the minor prophet Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk is is as applicable for us today as it was when it was written almost 2,500 years ago to the southern kingdom of Judah. We don't know much about Habakkuk. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament. He's called a minor prophet. And even though he's a minor prophet, it doesn't mean that his message was not important. It just means that he just didn't have as much to say. But what he said was very powerful. And it packs a punch. The book of Habakkuk is three chapters. It's 56 verses. And he says a lot in those 56 verses. He was a contemporary of Jeremiah of Nahum and Zephaniah. Habakkuk's name, it comes from the Hebrew verb to embrace or to fold hands. Now some say this was an indication that Habakkuk embraced the call, the message, and the task that God placed on his life. There are other scholars who see no connection between his name and the content of the book that he wrote. We don't know how old he was. We do know that he was spiritually mature and he spent his childhood in Judah during the reign of King Josiah. If you remember King Josiah, he was crowned king at the age of eight years old. He was one of the few righteous kings in Judah. And at the age of 16, he began serious reforms that changed the nation's spiritual life. And during the 18th year of his reign, during the repairing of the temple, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord known as Deuteronomy. And that led to conviction, that led to revival, that led to the Lord's Supper, the Passover, being revived. But after Josiah's death, his son Jehoiakim took over. Jehoiakim undid everything that his father had done. And under his leadership or lack of leadership, Judah returned to their evil ways. And based on Habakkuk 1.6, it is evident that Habakkuk wrote his book when the Babylonians were becoming the new world power. In 612 B.C., the Babylonians had defeated the the Assyrians. They destroyed the capital of of Nineveh. And then they defeated Pharaoh Necho II and the Egyptians in the battle at Carchemish in 605 B.C. Most scholars believe that Habakkuk was written between 612 B.C. and 597 B.C., which was after the fall of Nineveh and right before the siege of Jerusalem in 597 B.C. Most scholars put it early 600s B.C., not too long after the death of Josiah, but right before Babylon set their sights on Judah. So this is the backdrop against which Habakkuk wrote and lived. And what is unique about Habakkuk is unlike other prophets, Habakkuk speaks to God about his people instead of speaking to the people about God. In the book of Habakkuk, He takes on a lot of the same problems we are facing today. And because of all that was going on in the nation of Judah, 
Habakkuk was a man who was seeking answers from God. He asked God hard questions because he was troubled by what he saw was happening in the nation of Judah. He had, he had experienced, he had seen the downward spiral that Judah was in from the time that King Josiah died and now with his son Jehoiakim being in power. His heart was broken for his nation and his nation was defined by chaos. His nation was defined by turmoil. He was deeply disturbed by the spiritual and social condition of Judah. And he asked God questions like, God, aren't you in charge? God, if you're in charge, why are all these things happening? Why are the wicked prospering? And he boldly took his questions and his complaints to God, and God answered him. And throughout his book, Habakkuk is seeking to reconcile the goodness of God with the justice of God in the midst of a culture that's rampant with wickedness and evil. And Habakkuk begs God to do something. He wants God to do something, and he wants him to do it now. And God does do something. But the response God gives him is not the response Habakkuk was expecting. And after this dialogue between the, uh, God and Habakkuk in chapters 1 and 2 over the turmoil in Judah... Habakkuk concludes his book with a, pair of triumph, with a prayer of triumph in chapter 3 as he rejoices in God and what he will do. So this morning I want to start by looking at Habakkuk 1, 1 through 11. As Habakkuk implores God to do something about what is happening in the nation of Judah. And I want you to think about three things this morning as we go through this passage. If you proclaim to be a follower of Christ, I want you to think, is your life different from the world? Remember, Habakkuk is frustrated over how God's own people are acting. Secondly, I want you to think about, are you as heartbroken and disturbed about what is happening in our nation, even our world, as Habakkuk is disturbed and distraught over what is happening in Judah? And then if you are heartbroken, what are you doing about it? And then finally, I want you to think about, do you still believe that God is in control, no matter how bad seems to be out of control? So as we go through this passage this morning, those are the things I want you to think about. So let's read Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. It says in verse 1, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, Lord, must I call for help, and you do not listen, and cry out to you about violence, and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Verse 5, look at the nations and observe. This is God speaking. Be utterly astounded, for something is taking place in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans or Babylonians that... That bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. All of them come to violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. 
their strength is their God. The first point I want you to look at this morning, and it's really mainly an outline of what is happening here in Habakkuk, is in verse 1, it's the prophet's profound pronouncement. Say that three times. The prophet's profound announcement. Habakkuk's prophecy is it's described as an oracle. Some translations say pronouncement. Uh, either one is okay. An oracle, a proclamation, simply means it's an authoritative announcement or declaration. And the Hebrew verb used for oracle is the verb masa. It means the heavy burden or to lift or to carry. And it's the idea of lifting up the voice to deliver a word or a message from God. In fact, it's lifting up your voice to declare a heavy message of God. And it's usually a message that is filled with the judgment of the wicked. And so Habakkuk in his book receives a heavy message, an authoritative declaration from God himself. And the word receives is from the Hebrew verb kazah. Kazah means to see. So putting this all together, God opened the spiritual eyes of Habakkuk to receive his divine message. And because Habakkuk was a spiritually mature man, because he was a man of spiritual discernment and he had his pulse on what was happening in his country. Because he was in tune with God. God chose Habakkuk to receive his message to share with Judah. And this was just not any message. This was a serious message. This was a message of authority. Even in our own lives there is a difference between a message and a message with authority. There was a dad who was welcoming his son home as he was returning from boot camp with the Marines. And growing up, the dad would ask his son to do things, and his son wouldn't follow through, or at least not right away. But as the son and dad were talking, the son told his dad, he said, Dad, my life makes sense now. I understand everything you said and did when I was growing up. And then he said, I even learned what now means. You see, in his mind, there was a difference between what his dad said and what the Marine officer said. You know, in my own life, there was a difference when my parents said, Dwayne, can you please come here? Well, should I give you my middle name? Or, Dwayne Bradford Abrahamson, can you get over here right now? I knew when my parents used my middle name. And now you can see why I hated filling in those bubbles on those standardized tests. Never do that to your children. You see why, you see the difference between the two. You can give a simple message, but God wasn't just giving a simple message. He was giving a message of authority. And when my parents used my middle name, I knew it wasn't going to be pretty. I knew it was going to be a message that involved punishment. Habakkuk is about to receive from God and Yahweh. An authoritative announcement and a profound announcement as well. And what God is going to reveal to Habakkuk is going to be intense. And God is going to give Habakkuk great insight into what he is going to do to punish the sin and the rebellion and the disobedience against him that is being practiced in the nation of Judah. God had given Judah chance after chance after chance. And they continued to do evil. They had even seen the northern kingdom of Israel fall to the Assyrians under the leadership of King Shalmaneser V in 721 B.C. 
So just about a hundred years prior to this, they saw the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, destroyed by a pagan power, Assyria, because of their rebellion against God. But now Judah is choosing to go down this same path. You see, what God did to Israel, he was about to do to Judah. As we go through this great book of Habakkuk, you will see the message God had for Habakkuk to share with his people that it was one of urgency, it was one of judgment, but in the end it's also one of grace and mercy. The second point on your outline is we're going to look at the prophet's passionate plea in verses 2 through 4. This is Habakkuk's passionate plea. This is his prayer to God. He says, God, how long must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you, but violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of you. Strife is going to go and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges for the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. In these verses, Habakkuk is honest with God. He pours out his heart to God by asking God a question. In verse 2, he says, God, how long must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you violence and you do not save? You see, Habakkuk knew that God had the power to intervene. He knew that God had the power to save and and to destroy the wicked and to eradicate evil. But in Habakkuk's eyes, God wasn't doing anything and he wanted God to do something. He said, how long, God, are you going to wait? That question, how long, is not one that Habakkuk just asked. It occurs 65 other times in Scripture. And it's mainly used when people are expressing anguish over God's perceived delay in bringing justice. David had the same question uh, when either Absalom was conspiring against him or when Saul was trying to kill him, either one. In Psalm 13, 1 and 2, David said, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Just like David, Habakkuk is asking God, How long? How long, God, do I have to endure this? How long can this go on without you doing something? You see, Habakkuk is saddened by all the corruption, all the violence that was around him. And in fact, he must have been already calling out to God for some time. And he was simply continually waiting uh, on God to answer him. You know, there are times in our lives when we continually cry out to God. And God does not seem to respond. Or God continues to be silent, at least in our minds. Maybe it's in the, when you pray for the healing of a loved one. Maybe it's in a financial struggle. Maybe you have a family member of a child who's, who's wandered away from the faith. Or maybe there's someone's salvation you've been praying for and it seems like their heart is so hardened and that God just isn't moving. You know, oftentimes in our lives we ask the same question, God, how long? But this is exactly what is happening to Habakkuk. And in essence, what Habakkuk is doing is asking God, he's asking God, why is he continuing to tolerate sin and evil as crime was rampant and violence was on the rise? Habakkuk was distraught over the spiritual and moral decay that was taking place in Judah, and he wanted God to do something. 
But unlike other prophets, instead of proclaiming divine judgment, he was pleading for divine judgment. You see, God's own people had forgotten him. God's own people had forsaken him. They, had, they were seeking personal pleasure. They were seeking self-promotion. They worshipped idols. They were unfaithful to the covenant that God made with them. Leaders of the nation had ignored the law of God and they instituted their own false righteousness. Judah was morally and spiritually bankrupt from the top down. And this is not only the condition of Judah. This is the condition of America today. We are morally and spiritually bankrupt as a nation. And may we not ignore what is happening in our nation or be apathetic about it, but be broken about it just like Habakkuk was. And just as God opened the eyes of Habakkuk to what is happening in Judah, may God open our eyes and hearts to what is happening in our nation. You don't have to look very far to see the moral corruptness and spiritual corruptness of our nation it's in the news every day. Just this past weekend, we're all mourning the three police officers that were killed and the other fives that were injured in Floyd County simply by doing their job. In New York, an ex-boyfriend fatally shot the wife of his child while she was pushing the child in a baby stroller while they were out for a walk. Minnesota, three children and a mom were pulled from a lake as officials fear a quadruple homicide-suicide. The dad was found dead in their house. A man received 45 years in prison for killing his neighbor in broad daylight because the neighbor helped his wife and child escape an abusive situation. Not long ago, an escaped convict in Texas killed a grandfather and four of his grandchildren at their cabin the day they arrived because he wanted to steal their truck. There are shootings all around us. There's vicious assaults all around us. Just in Chicago, and this was Saturday morning, by, on Friday night, 22 were shot already and four killed. Our nation has lost its moral compass. Then there's the abortion issue. And someone said, imagine being upset that babies will live. And I'm not here to judge anyone. But I have a hard time understanding how someone can say they are a follower of Christ and be pro-abortion. I can't see how someone can be for God, the giver of life, but be against protecting life. Doesn't make sense to me. And then there's the LBGTQ plus issue. How can someone support this lifestyle and be a follower of Christ? There's the transgender issue. How many genders? I have no idea now. They keep making them up. But you know what? I can tell you what God's Word says. God's Word says there's only two. And I believe God's Word because God decides and we don't. You can't say you're a follower of Christ and love the world. This is what's taking place in Judah. And this is what is happening in America. I just saw a few days ago where churches are now apologizing to the LGBTQ plus community for the stand they've taken against alternative lifestyles. We do not need to apologize for the word of God. We do not need to apologize for the truth. We need to stand for the truth. 
And that's exactly what Habakkuk was doing. He was trying to stand for the truth in a culture that was morally and spiritually corrupt. And John, Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commands. Not some of his commands, but all of his commands. We don't get to pick and choose what we like and don't like. If it's in God's word, it's truth, whether you like it or lie like it or not. And God makes it very clear in his word how we're supposed to live. And to do anything less is rebellion and sin against God. But here's the issue Habakkuk had that he was trying to to wrap around his mind. Habakkuk saw what was happening in Judah. God saw what was happening in Judah. God knew what was happening. So Habakkuk was disturbed that God seemed not to care about what was happening. Habakkuk is trying to rationalize the sovereignty of God with the actions of God. You can't rationalize God. God is infinite. We are finite. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says this. It says that God's thoughts and God's ways are higher than our thought and his ways. And as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his thoughts higher than our thoughts. But in Habakkuk's mind, the actions of God, it did not match God's sovereignty. He was thinking if God is over all things, nothing is out of his control, then why is this happening? Why is everything out of control? He had been pleading with God and God had not intervened. To Habakkuk it was as maybe if God didn't really care. Because the wicked were prospering while God's people were suffering. And maybe when you look at the state of our nation, maybe... You ask or heard others ask, where is God? Or maybe, God, why don't you do something? You see what's going on. Why don't you do something? Or maybe, God, how can you as a holy God tolerate sin and evil and let your people suffer? And there's something that can be a barrier for people to give their life to Christ. I've heard this and maybe you. How can I believe in a loving, personal God when he allows bad things to happen? You see, we need to understand that evil and suffering do not exist because God exists. Evil and suffering exist because sin exists. God is not the author of evil. God is the author of good. And sin and evil exist not because God exists, but because of our sin and our rebellion. It's the consequences of our actions. And to the question, where is God? My answer is, he's where he's always been. He's on the throne. Because God is not the problem. We are the problem. But if he is where he's always been, why doesn't he act? The problem is, he does act. Just not the way we want him to. Or not always when we want him to. Remember Isaiah said his ways and his thoughts are so much higher than our ways and our thoughts. We can't rationalize the sovereignty of God. If you could do that, you yourself would be God. And there would be no need for God. In verse 3, Habakkuk asked another question. He went from how long to why? He said, why do you force me to look at this injustice? Why do you tolerate long doing Judah was inundated with evil. There was sin all around Habakkuk, and he was disturbed by it. 
And he was so disturbed that he used six terms to describe how prevalent evil was in Judah. He said he used the words injustice and wrong and destruction and violence and strife and conflict. It is evident that people were being mistreated. In court, the righteous were being mistreated by the powerful. And the violence was overwhelming. And the word for violence is the same word that Noah used when he described his world before God destroyed it with the flood. Habakkuk said strife was rampant. That word strife, it refers to wide-scale legal action. Everybody was suing everybody for everything. Sounds like America, doesn't it? No one could get a law. The courts were overwhelmed with just the sheer volume of lawsuits, many of which were frivolous. I have to make a confession. I love to watch Justice Central. When I have a chance, I like to turn to Justice Central just to see how idiotic some of these cases are that people bring to court. There was a case where a roommate sued her other roommate because she didn't wake her up in time for her final in college that she failed. Not making this up. A woman sued her neighbor because he picked up apples that fell from her tree in his yard and she was mad. A mom sued a homeowner because her child got hurt in the man's pool when he was not home, even though the child trespassed. And he wanted the man who wasn't home, who had a fence around his pool, to pay for the child's medical bills. And all these lawsuits are coming out now against fast food companies. Because the pictures on the TV doesn't match what you get in the restaurant. It's called fast food for a reason. Or the pictures on the TV are not as big as the burger in the restaurant. Just silly things. A man sued Uber for ruining his marriage. He forgot to tear off the tracker on his phone. And now he's suing Uber for, because his marriage went downhill. And it goes on and on and on. And in verse 4, Habakkuk says, Because all that is happening, the law was paralyzed. The law is no longer of use. Because judges were not following the law of Israel. They were making their own laws. They were interpreting the laws the way they wanted to. Does that sound familiar? Judges were making unjust decisions. And they were being bribed by the wealthy. And the wealthy were taking the property and the possessions from the righteous. And were even turning their families into slaves. No wonder Habakkuk was upset. No wonder Habakkuk was distraught. And how Habakkuk described Judah describes our nation today. We're a nation full of destruction. We're a nation full of violence, mass shootings, the brazenness of assaults and robberies, the injustice, the wrong, the hatred, the strife, the conflict, the terrorism, the human trafficking, the economic unrest, the the prejudice and the racism, the political unrest, the spiritual deception. Just as God's word was being twisted in the nation of Judah, God's word is being twisted today. People are turning God's word into whatever they want to turn it into to justify their actions. Their society has been described as one of moral insanity. I think that would be a good description of our nation today. I saw this quote. It said, everyone has the right to be stupid. Some just abuse the privilege. 
There are a lot of people abusing that privilege today. You see, legislation is not going to change the condition of our nation. The only thing that's going to change the condition of our nation is the regeneration and transformation of hearts by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about laws. It's about the gospel. There's a Peanuts cartoon where Lucy says to Linus, they're sitting at a table, Lucy says to him, I hear they're going to create hundreds of new laws this year. Linus replies, until we learn to follow the ten God gave us, nothing will ever change. There's some spiritual truth in that little cartoon. Isn't that so true? Can you imagine how different our nation and our culture would be if we simply followed the law God has already given us? The Ten Commandments. And remember the first commandment? No other gods before me. And the greatest commandment that Jesus gave, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Can you imagine how our nation would be different if God was our only God and everyone loved God with all that they have? You see, the problem today is as it was in Judah. Too many people loving the world and not enough people loving God. See, it's a heart problem. It's not a legal problem. Before our nation can change, people have to realize the only answer to our problem is God and we need to trust Him. If hearts are not changed, our nation will not be changed. And even though the United States is historically a a Christian nation in the sense that it was influenced by the Judeo-Christian worldview, Culturally, it's not a Christian nation. In fact, today I would say we are are no longer a Christian nation and have not been for a long, long time. Why? Because we've lost our moral and spiritual compass. As a nation, we have no regard for God and His Word. We have no regard for others. We try to make moral what God has declared immoral. We try to establish our own laws of righteousness. We try to do right what is in our own eyes instead of what is right in God's eyes. And that was the same problem that the Israelites had in the book of Judges. The last verse of Judges 21-25 says they did right what is in their own eyes. There's a quote I, I saw. It says, man laws cannot make moral what God has declared immoral. Even if a sin is legalized, it's still a sin in the eyes of God. Even if a sin is legalized, it is still a sin in the eyes of God. We can't undo what God has done. God is the only righteous one. And His word is the only truth. See, is the world and our nation out of control? It is. And people wonder, may wonder, how bad can it get? I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but the answer is it's going to get worse before it gets better. Does this mean we give up? No, it means we look up and we get down. What do I mean by that? We look to God and we spend time on our knees in prayer, interceding for our nation, and ask God to change the hearts of people. Like Habakkuk, we need to be concerned about what's happening in America. We need to cry out to God over the sin and the despair and the lostness and the hopelessness of our nation and our world because if we don't weep over our nation, 
there is no hope for our nation. And just like Habakkuk was honest with God and cried out to God, God wants us to be honest with him and cry out to him. And nowhere in this exchange between Habakkuk and God do I see that God was offended by Habakkuk. God was not offended by the questions Habakkuk asked. And neither will God be offended when we come to him and ask him questions and seek answers. And I would say in reality, God is more offended when we go looking everywhere else for answers but to him. God is more offended when we don't seek him than when we do seek him. And when we cry out to God, when we pour out to him, he's going to hear us just like he did Habakkuk. The last point I want to make in this outline is verses 5 through 11. We looked at the pronouncement. We've seen Habakkuk's passionate plea. Now we're going to see God's or Yahweh's providential response. God heard Habakkuk, and God was going to intervene. He was going to do something. He was going to give Habakkuk relief from all that he had seen, but it was not in the way that Habakkuk was hoping. Look at verse 5. God tells Habakkuk, Look at the nations, observe, be utterly astounded, for something is taking place in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. You see, sometimes God answers our prayers in unexpected and unusual ways. And this was the case in how God responded to Habakkuk. God was about to do the unthinkable. He was going to do something that would even cause Habakkuk to be floored and amazed. What was God going to do? Verse 6. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to to seize territories not its own. God was going to use the Babylonians as an evil pagan nation to bring judgment against his own people, Judah, just as he had promised. When did God promise this? Way back in Deuteronomy 28. If you go to Deuteronomy 28, it's the chapter on blessings and cursings. And based on what Israel did, God would choose whether to bless Israel or to curse them. Speaking to his own people. Verse 15 and 16 of Deuteronomy 28, he says, If you do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following all his commands and statutes I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. And then he lists the curses from that point on. And then in verse 48, he says this, 49, I'm sorry. 49, he says, The Lord will bring a nation from far away, from the ends of the earth, to swoop down on you like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a ruthless nation showing no respect for the old and not sparing the young. They'll eat the offspring of your livestock and your soil's produce until you are destroyed. They will leave no grain, new wine, oil, young, or your herds, or newborn of your flocks until they cause you to perish. They'll besiege you within all your gates until your high and fortified walls that you trust in come down throughout your land. They'll besiege you within all your gates throughout the land the Lord your God has given you. You know who God was describing in that passage in Deuteronomy? For the northern kingdom, he was describing the Assyrians. For the southern kingdom, he was describing the Chaldeans, also known as 
the Babylonians. You see, when Yahweh told Habakkuk what he was going to do, Habakkuk's response must have been, Are you serious, God? What are you doing? God, I asked you to do something, but I didn't ask you to do that. This was completely unexpected. God was about to purge Judah of their unfaithfulness in a way that no one saw it coming. And they wouldn't have believed it even if God had told them. Have you ever had something in life that happened that you never saw coming? Something that happened and you're like, I wasn't expecting that. I know that that's happened to me a, a couple of times, but last summer when we were going on vacation, we'd been on the road for about two hours and were involved in a multi-vehicle accident in Knoxville. Road was wet, people were traveling, and all of a sudden there was a slamming on the brakes. And all you heard was metal against metal. I never saw that coming. Even in the midst of that accident, I never saw that coming. It caused almost $13,000 worth of damage to our SUV. I did get a better vehicle out of it. I praise God for that. But I really didn't want to go what I went through to get that. Never saw it coming. And anybody ever told you something and you still didn't believe it when they told you? You're like, oh, that didn't happen. There ain't no way. I need proof. Aaron's not here this morning, so I'll tell on him. Um, Aaron was two, about two years old, and Joni saw him in the yard, and he had his pants down. And he was squatting over a flower pot. And Joni said, Aaron, what are you doing? Aaron said, I'm using the potty, Mommy. <laughs> That's a true story. Joni told that me that, and there was no way I could believe that, that he would go in the yard and actually think the flower pot was what he was supposed to use. We eventually showed him the right one, and he finally got it. But, but when Joni shared that with me, I couldn't believe it. I almost wish I would have been there to see it. That would have been incredible. I don't even think we have pictures of that. But, um, but when I told people, I, and when I told people I finally found someone to marry, they couldn't believe it. They were amazed, and so was I. But, and that's something I never saw coming. And that was unexpected how God did that. But that's another story for another time. But, but why was this so expected? I'm not talking about my marriage. I'm talking about what God told Habakkuk. Why was this so unexpected? Because look at how God describes the Babylonian army. And keep in mind what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 28. He says they're ruthless in verse 6. He says, I'm raising them up. They're bitter. They're impetuous. They march across the earth's open spaces to seize territories, not its own. They had no desire for diplomacy. They knew how to inflict pain. They were angry men. They were bitter. They were fierce. They would attack like a wild animal would attack and conquer anything. They took whatever they wanted because they could. They were quick and they were different. Think about how they treated Zedekiah. If you remember the story of Zedekiah. Nebuchadnezzar killed all of Zedekiah's sons right before his very own eyes. And then he took Hedekiah and he gouged his own eyes out. And think about the last thing that Zedekiah saw. 
was his sons being killed by the Babylonians. That's how ruthless these guys were. They were quick. They were efficient. They were like no other enemy anybody had ever seen. Verse 7 says they were arrogant. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. They were arrogant. They thought they were a law unto themselves. They instilled fear because they had the power and they had the capability to conquer anyone. Verse 8 says their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. They, they come from distant lands. They fly like an eagle, eagle swooping to devour. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 28. It said a nation is going to conquer you whose men are swift as eagles and whose men are ruthless. God's prophecy is coming to fulfillment. They were resolute in their assault. They were laser focused. They attacked so quickly, they attacked like an eagle that their prey had no chance to react. You ever seen an eagle or a hawk take a prey? That prey has no chance. That prey is unexpecting of what's about to happen to them. And in the moment, that prey has been gobbled up by that hawk or that eagle. They've accomplished their task and they did it quickly without any opposition. Verse 9, it says that all of them come to violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They had one objection. That one objection was violence. They had one goal, to inflict as much harm as possible on their enemies. And remember in verse 3, Habakkuk says there's violence. There's oppression all around. But now God's about to bring a greater violence on Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. God is going to give Judah a taste of their own medicine. They're going to reap what they've sown. And this is true today. We will reap what we sow. I believe it's a foregone conclusion. It's a guarantee that God is going to do something about the evil and the sin and the wickedness in the world. At some point, he's going to take care of it. Verse 10, he says they... They mock kings and rulers and they are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to to capture it. No one scares them. They mock at their enemy. They laugh at their enemy. They're intimidating. They loved war. They loved to fight. They were looking for a good fight. And they were good at it. Remember also in the book of Deuteronomy it said that this army that comes from from a foreign land will build siege ramps and attack your fortified cities and tear them down. It's exactly what God said is going to happen here at the hands of the Babylonians. In verse 11, they sweep by like the wind and pass through their guilty. Their strength is their God. They were unrelenting. They left a path of death. They left a path of destruction like hurricane or tornadic force wind. But that last phrase is so important. Their strength was their God. Because their strength was their God. Because they trusted in themselves and the military power. Because they failed to recognize that God was the one that established their authority. And was the reason for their rise to power. Because they ignored the sovereignty of God. They were going to be guilty before God. They may have been powerful. 
But their power was temporary. Their power was limited. God's power is unlimited. God's power is eternal. God is the Almighty. There is no one like Him. God is omnipotent. No one can compare to the power of God. No matter how powerful the Babylonians thought they were, they were no match for God Himself. And they were unaware that they were only a tool in the hands of the Almighty, omnipotent God, Yahweh, as God was going to use them to destroy and discipline His own people. You know, their strength was their God. Their strength was also going to be their downfall. Because they trusted in their strength instead of trusting in their God. Their power was short-lived. Psalm 27 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You see, instead of trusting in ourselves, instead of trusting in our government or our finances or our legal system, We need to place our trust in one person and one person only. And that is God himself. And even when it may seem that God is absent or asleep, the truth is God is always at work. God is always waiting. God is always watching. God is always working to accomplish his purposes. Habakkuk asked God to do something and he did even though it wasn't what Habakkuk was expecting. And the main reason God did what he did in raising up the Babylonians was because of Judah's deliberate rebellion against God and his laws. Their constant and deliberate failure to obey God was the primary reason for the downfall of Judah. And I will say our deliberate rebellion to obey God, our failure to obey God will be the downfall of any nation including the United States of America. Where, does God, where God does not exist, where God is abandoned, where God is ignored, where God is not welcome, the nation will cease to exist. However, a nation that follows God will be blessed by God, as it says in Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 2. Yes, we have freedom as a nation, and I'm thankful for that freedom. We have freedom to think. We have freedom to believe. We have freedom to worship. We have freedom to act how we want, say what we want. And we are to thank God for that freedom. But without Christ, we have no real freedom. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We need God in our nation. We need God in our lives more than ever before as only God can unite what is divided. God can only heal what is broken. God is the only one who can bring peace out of conflict. The answer isn't more laws or more government. The answer is Jesus Christ. Change does not begin with the government. Change begins with us trusting in Jesus. And if we want God to intervene, and work in our nation and change our nation. We need to ask God to work in us and change us. And we need to understand, as Habakkuk came to understand, that God follows a divine plan. God follows his plan, not ours. God follows a divine timetable, his timetable, not ours. And we need to be willing to wait on him. 
And when our surroundings and our circumstances seem to be out of control, we need to remember that God is in control and will always be in control. As all of history is His story, not our story. And may we never forget that God will do something about the evil in our world. One day He will judge those who do evil. One day they will get what is coming to them. Their sin and their wickedness will not go unpunished. But until then, we need to trust God. We need to love God. And we need to live for Him. This morning, if you proclaim to be a follower of Christ, I want to go back to the questions I mentioned at the beginning of the message. If you proclaim to be a follower of Christ, I ask you, is your life different from that of the world? Remember Habakkuk's frustrated over how God's own people are acting. And God wants us to be part of the solution and not the problem. The way you can be part of the solution is to make sure that your life aligns with the word of God and with the life of Christ. Then I ask you, do you still believe God is in control no matter how bad things seem to be? Is your faith in God or is your faith in the government and are you as heartbroken and disturbed and distraught about what is happening in our nation and even our world as Habakkuk was over what is happening in Judah and if you are heartbroken if you are disturbed if you are distraught what are you doing to try to make a difference and if you are heartbroken for our nation if you disturbed about our nation if you want God to intervene and change hearts, I want to encourage you, invite you to come to this altar this morning and pray for our nation. God promises that if we pray to him, if we seek him, if we ask for forgiveness, if we humble ourselves before him, he will heal our land. Apart from seeking God and praying to God, there is no solution for our land. So while the instruments play in a few minutes, I'm going to ask you if you want to come to pray for our nation. I want to invite you to do that this morning. And maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus. You can't have true independence until you depend on God by placing your trust in him. You can't have true freedom until you are free in Christ and free from sin and death. So if you've never given your life to Christ this morning, I challenge you and encourage you to do that. Or maybe there's other decisions God is leading you to make. But I'll be down at the front. If you want to pray with me or talk to me, I'll be there. But after I pray and, and Bill comes and leads us in a song of, of commitment, I want to encourage you to think about if you're living for God or living for the world. And I want you to think about how distraught are you about our nation. And if you're really burdened about our nation and heartbroken about what's happening, I want to encourage you and challenge you to come and fill this altar. Pray for our leaders. You know, we like to criticize our leaders, but Scripture says pray for them. Pray for our leaders to have godly wisdom. Pray for God to change their hearts. Pray for God to change our hearts. And pray that we would be a light in darkness in a nation and a world that needs Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning and we just thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for, Lord, this minor prophet Habakkuk. 
And Father, how easily his book translates to us today. Father, there's so much evil and so much sin and so much wickedness in our world. God, and sometimes we may wonder, where are you, God? But Father, may we never lose sight of the fact that you are still on your throne. You are where you always have been. And God, may we have patience to wait on you. God, may we have patience to trust you. God, in that time of waiting, may we be a light in darkness. Father, we do pray for our nation today and for our leaders. God, we thank you for the freedom that we have. But God, in many cases, we've abused that freedom. Father, we've turned against you. Father, we've legislated sin. Forgive us as a nation, Father, for turning from you and turning from your word. And Father, I pray that we would not apologize for your truth, but we would stand on your truth. And Father, we just ask that you would work in hearts and lives this morning. And Father, we do celebrate our nation. We thank you for our country. We do ask that you would bless our nation. But God, may we understand the greatest freedom is not in America. Our greatest freedom is in Christ as Jesus paid the sacrifice to free us from sin and death and hell and the grave. And we are free in Christ to worship Christ and live Christ and to serve Christ. And Father, this morning, work in the hearts of people. May lives be changed. We ask all these things in your most precious and holy name. Amen. This morning, I invite you to come. And I just want to challenge you again to come and pray. For our nation because if God's people aren't going to pray for our nation who is so let's stand and sing and do as God leads this morning